Well, good morning and welcome to the Stories campus here in Houston's Museum District. And thank you to those of us, uh, those of you who are joining us online today. You are just as much a part of this community and we're really grateful that all of you are choosing to spend your Sunday morning with us. If we haven't met before, my name is Meredith Kirk Thompson, and I am actually a full-time Krav Maga instructor and a part-time seminary student. Um, I've been a member here at The Story for a little over seven years, and I serve as one of the leaders over at Timber Grove. So it's really, really awesome for me to be here today. I don't get to be over at this campus a lot, so when I am, it's really special. And I'm excited to continue us through this series called The Physician and the Facts. So we are 17 weeks into this like 22-week mega-series of the Gospel of Luke, and this book was written by a Gentile physician. So he was a scientist and a man of research that ended up being commissioned to investigate if the claims being made about the Gospel were true. And what we've seen for the last 16 weeks is that not only does Luke believe that this is true, but Luke wants us to know something really specific about the Gospel. Now, when we hear that word gospel or even the term good news, I think we tend to think of the cross and the empty tomb. And those are really great connections to make. But Luke wants us to understand is that the good news about Jesus doesn't end there. The gospel isn't just about what Jesus did, but it's about what he continues to do through the kingdom of God. And he has spent 18 chapters of this book showing us what the kingdom of God looks like and how it just inverts all of our expectations, where a worldly kingdom would value power and influence and money, a godly kingdom values humility and sacrifice and forgiveness. And those are not things that you would expect this highly intellectual scientist like Luke to say makes a successful kingdom. And yet he is really clear that the kingdom of God is here, that it is now, and that Jesus is the king. And there are only two responses that we can have to that. We can either reject the kingdom of God or we can accept it. And so today, that's what we're going to be looking at. What, is it, what does it mean for us to reject God's kingdom and what does it mean to accept it? So if you want to grab your Bibles, um, or you can also have, I think the scriptures on the study guides that you have as you came in, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28 and go through 40. 28, 19, 19, 28, sorry. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So right before this story we're reading now, Jesus had told a parable about a king and his kingdom. And so now what we're going to see is Jesus pretty much living out that exact story that he told. So verse 29. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying it? And they replied, the Lord needs it. And they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. 
As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, if you've um, been in church for any amount of time, that passage probably sounds a little familiar to you. Um, It's often called the triumphant entry, and it's this really big moment in the life of Jesus where he is making this very public statement that he is the king as he goes into Jerusalem. There were even Old Testament prophecies about this exact moment happening. And while that might seem like a really weird way to declare kingship, like riding a donkey, that's just how it was in the Old Testament times. And so everybody who's watching this, the Pharisees and the crowds, they all know exactly what that moment means. They probably memorized the prophecies, they knew about the traditions, so they know what it means, and they've already made up their mind about it. And what we see here in this passage are two types of rejection. The first is straightforward, and that's the Pharisees. They're very outspoken. They know what Jesus is saying about his kingship, and they're terrified by it because they don't want him coming in and taking over the authority that they have. And so they're outspoken. They say it straight to his face. Notice they called him teacher. Everyone else in this passage has called him Lord or the king so far. And they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, they say, you're not the king. Tell them to stop calling you that. And so they just come out and say it. But the crowds, on the other hand, they have a much more subtle rejection of Jesus. And that's the second type that we see. And that might seem a little surprising to you because they are literally singing his praises. They're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Like they're ecstatic They have waited for a king. In fact, they have waited decades upon decades upon decades for a king. They have been eagerly awaiting this uprising, and here comes Jesus, fulfilling these prophecies, declaring himself as their king. And to top it all off, he's doing it five days before the Passover. And that would have been a really big deal to them. The Passover is one of the biggest celebrations remembering one of the biggest moments in the history of Israel when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. So if you're expecting a king to stage some anti-Roman rebellion, there is no better time to do it than on a holiday that symbolizes freedom from oppression. And so just imagine what it would have been like as a first century Jew. Just put yourself in their position for a moment. Like every year, For your entire life, you have traveled into Jerusalem to celebrate a holiday about freedom, but you're not free. And every time you go, you wonder, like, is this the year? Is this the year that we get the king that we were promised? And then it doesn't happen. And then it doesn't happen again. And then you're disappointed. And then you start to feel dejected. And you start to wonder if God forgot or maybe if any of it was even true at all. 
And then all of a sudden, something's different this year. You've heard rumors about this guy named Jesus, and he's been going around teaching and healing people, performing miracles. And you're struck with this sense of hope that he's the guy, like he's the one that's going to come. Like imagine the excitement and the anticipation that would overwhelm you in that moment as you watched Jesus ride into Jerusalem. Because that is the emotional reality that almost everyone in that crowd is experiencing. Like they're convinced that Jesus is coming in to overthrow Rome. They are convinced that Jesus is a king. But that is only going to last as long as he's fulfilling their expectations of one. This same group of people that's saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in just four chapters, they're gonna be calling for his crucifixion. Like they wanted Jesus to be a king of their own making, not the king that he came to be. And it's subtle, but they are rejecting him. You know, we subtly reject stuff all the time, acknowledge that something's true and then not really let that truth have any bearing on our lives. For me, this happens basically every time I get in the car. Like, I know that the speed limit on most major highways in the city of Houston is 65, and that truth has no bearing on my life. I go at least 85, that's a minimum, because I don't like wasting time. And 65, that's a waste of time. Like, if you have somewhere to go, just get there. You know, have you, um, have you ever been merging onto a freeway and there's just this psycho behind you, just inches from your bumper, waving at you to go faster? That's me. I'm that crazy person. Like, just move. I don't understand why you need to go 30 miles an hour up this ramp, but like, let's go. Let's move. Like, it, it drives me crazy. <laughs> but look, let me just say this. If you are one of those people Okay, that goes 30 miles an hour merging onto a freeway, I just want you to do me a favor when you get home today, okay? Just find a drawer in your house. It doesn't matter which one, any drawer. And I want you to take your keys and put them in that drawer. <laughs> and then close the drawer. And then never drive again. You don't need to. It's not necessary. I don't know who gave you a license, but they were wrong. You're not cut out to drive, and it's okay. Just leave the road open for the rest of us. <laughs> Right, the point is, it's like, I know that there are rules to the road. I know that there are common courtesies that you should at least give other drivers. But I don't care about most of them. I don't, I at least wear my seatbelt, but everything else is up, you know, suggestions. But that's how subtle rejection works, you know? Like, it's sneaky, it's dangerous. You think it's not that bad because you at least are acknowledging that something's true. Subtle rejection looks like being convinced, but not convicted. Like, are you convinced that something is true and then not allowing that to convict you in your life? Like, if you're convinced that Jesus is the king, does your life look like it? If someone who never met you observed one day of your life, who would they say is your king? Like, this is the reality. Subtle rejection is the reality for most Christians, for church people. That's who these people are in the passage. They're the religious ones. But this is how we are. Like, we often care more about just wanting to do things our way, living our life, maintaining some semblance of control. We can care more about um, 
just being the sole authority of our lives more than we care about confronting basic truths of reality. Like, our life is our kingdom. We do it our way. For me, this happened pretty early on in life. Uh, I grew up in church. We were there all the time. It was a big part of my life. My parents were leaders. Um, and I, if you had asked me, I would have said that I was a Christian for the majority of my childhood. And then when I was 12 years old, my biological father tried to take my mother's life in front of me. And that all changed. Like, I walked away from the church because they walked away from me. I was mad at them. I was mad at my family. I was mad at God. I couldn't understand how he could let something like that happen. And my response was just to isolate myself completely and just be driven by my own self-sufficiency. Like, I was the king of my own kingdom, and nobody was going to tell me how to live. I clearly couldn't trust anybody else. Because all these people who were supposed to guide me, my church, my family, and God, they all failed me. So just taking over and doing life my way just made sense. It seemed like the best option. And man, the next 10 years of my life that I lived like this, those were some of the most dark, loneliest, and depressing years I've ever lived. There were times that I didn't even know if I wanted to be alive. Look, we can never be at peace as long as we are attempting to assert our authority over God's. There are consequences to being the king of your own kingdom, to being the only person that you have to answer to. And Luke gives us those consequences. It's back to chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. As he approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus, and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now, now it is hidden from your eyes. And the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's a really hard passage. That seems really harsh, maybe even a little bit unfair. And you might hear that and be thinking, how could Jesus do that to someone? But what I want you to see is that Jesus isn't doing this. Jesus is weeping over this. He's not crying because he knows that he's going into Jerusalem to die. He's heartbroken and he's weeping because he knows these people are ultimately rejecting the only thing that will bring them peace. They are rejecting the cross. They wanted a king of their own making, not the king that he came to be. And that's what it looks like when we, when we reject the cross. It looks like living a life of just being utterly unfulfilled, constantly at war with ourselves, encircled and hemmed in on every side. 
Because nothing we do will ever satisfy our desires. Nothing we do can bring us peace. Peace only comes from the cross. This idea that we're the king of our own kingdoms, it's such a sham. Like rejecting God's kingdom doesn't make it go away. It's not like he just yields his authority to us. He doesn't do that. He lets us make a choice about it. And we can choose peace through the cross or we choose the consequences that we create for ourselves. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3, 18 through 21. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. And this is what happens to those people. He says, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But that's not the only choice that we have to make. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So we can reject him and let our destiny be our destruction or we can accept him and find peace living for the kingdom of God. It wasn't until in my life when I encountered the entire truth of the gospel that my life changed. Like I heard about the cross. I had heard about the resurrection. I grew up in church. That was the first 12 years of my life. But it wasn't until I experienced someone who was living for the kingdom of God, that it all changed. This was about eight and a half years ago, and I had just started training in Krav Maga, um, and I had the opportunity to join this program where I could learn from the owner of the school, a man named CJ. And he was a fourth-degree black belt, very highly ranked. There's like a handful of them in the country. So it was an incredible opportunity. And so I started this training, and within just a matter of months, we went from working these you know, beginner-level self-defense techniques to learning how to defend knife attacks. And I was just shutting down because of everything that had happened in my life before. And so I would have these emotional breakdowns in class that I'd have to leave, and I was so frustrated because I wanted to learn. I knew that I needed to, but I just didn't know how to get past everything that was going on inside. And so I emailed CJ and I asked if I could sit down and, and talk with him. And so we did. He sat with me after class and I shared my story with him. I talked about why I had been struggling so much. And I didn't realize that in that moment it was just like a total turning point for me. A couple years later, CJ told me that as I sat there crying and telling him about my life, that he felt God calling him to be my dad. And let me tell you, that man embarked on one of the greatest pursuits that anyone has ever made to be a part of my life. And it was almost immediate. Like he invited me to spend Christmas with their family. Uh, every week for the next probably three years, he invited me to church here at the story. He texted me every Saturday, see you tomorrow. It wasn't even, he didn't even ask, he just told me, see you tomorrow. <laughs> And I was scared. I was reluctant. Like, the more that I tried to push him away, the more that he showed up for me. 
And finally, after three years of him relentlessly loving me and serving me and forgiving me and showing me the love of Christ, he formally adopted me into their family and became my dad. And at that point, I realized the only way that I could find peace was through the God that he served and through the kingdom that he was living for. And I was convicted of all the ways that I had been rejecting God and just trying to do it all my own way. And those are our options, to reject or to accept. And acceptance, that is conviction. It is the conviction that we are not the king of anything there is nothing that we can do. There is no choice that we can make that's going to be better than God's. Everything that we have, everything that we do belongs to him and not us. Even this week, as I was writing this message, I was convicted all over again of the things that I have held back, the parts of my life I haven't really let him in yet. I mean, if you asked me, I would say that he's a king. I'm a seminary student, for goodness sake. Like, I believe that. That's pretty obvious. But do you know what I have not turned over to him? What has ruled me is insecurity. I want to sound smart. I want to be intelligent. I want everybody in the room to think I'm intelligent. Growing up, my siblings and I, we were homeschooled, and it really wasn't very structured at all, and I was very self-conscious that I just wasn't learning everything that I needed to learn. And then there was a time, sometime between eight and 10, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I remember one of my parents saying to me that the reason that we were homeschooled was because we were too stupid to go to real school. And that, like, at eight years old, 10 years old, however old I was, like, really broke me. But then when everything happened with my biological father, it was just like those emotions and that desire for self-sufficiency went into overdrive. Like there is nothing that I wanted more than to be better than everybody, to be smarter than everybody, to know more, to do more. Like that was my whole mission in life. And I was the only one who could achieve it. At least that's what I thought in my mind. And here I am 20-something years later, and I'm still reluctant to let that go. Like, I have been driven by my desire to get good grades or sound smart more than I've been driven by my desire to just learn about Jesus and serve him. And like, I hate admitting that about myself, but it's true. And I've been convicted by that this week. And I've been, I've been convicted of how much I have withheld from him. And so my question for you is like, what are you withholding? Is it your time, your resources, your relationships? What is the thing that you don't really want to let him in on? I just want to say that of all the things that you could give authority over to, Jesus is the one. Because he is a king that is unlike any other. This is a king who weeps. This is a king who goes into Jerusalem to die. Like, what kind of a king sacrifices his life so his enemies have the opportunity to find peace? That is a king that deserves absolutely everything from us and nothing less.
Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the word of God that we have to remind us of how worthy you are, to remind us that we are not the kings of anything, that you are the true authority of our lives. And I just ask that you move in this place, that you move in our hearts and reveal to us the ways that we have been crowning other things king. Lord, and that today we could surrender that to you, that we would just honor you, that we would live for you and for your kingdom. It is in your name we pray. Amen.